We are in John chapter 11 this morning, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to jump right in because it's a, uh, it's a long passage. It's full of little life lessons that we can kind of tuck away and hang on to when we go through certain things in our, in our lives, um, whether it be a, a period of, of grieving, whether it be a period where you experience some sort of loss, where you are seeking God about something and he seems to be silent, um, we find those themes in this story that we're in this morning, as well as others that we'll talk about. So go ahead and grab your Bible, um, John chapter 11, uh, or if you guys have a, a phone or something with the, the Bible on there, that's fine as well, of course, and um, we're going to be in there together. Real quick before we jump in, we got to look at chapter 10, because there's an important thing that happens that'll give us a little bit of context when we, when we work our way through this 11th chapter. So right here in chapter 10 is kind of the end of Jesus' public ministry. This is kind of the last time that we see him out in the public sphere uh, ministering in the way that he did. And then chapter 11 kind of offers us a bridge between public ministry and then his Passion Week that comes, which is what we celebrate around Easter. Um, and so uh, this uh, chapter 11 is the bridge. But right here in chapter 10, we have a really intense confrontation that happens between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And uh, basically what happens is as he's teaching, they're getting so fired up and so angry that they literally have the stones in their hands and they force Jesus to the edge of a cliff and they are getting ready to stone him and kill him because they're so upset. But Jesus escapes um, through the crowd and uh, then kind of Across the Jordan River into Perea is where he spends the last few months before he'll re-enter Jerusalem um, and have his final, final week on, uh, on earth before his crucifixion. So we're calling them nuggets because I'm in charge and I get to choose what to call them. All right. Um, so nuggets. We're going to have five nuggets. Basically kind of little pieces of truth um, that we pull out of the passage, right? So five nuggets that we're going to find. Okay, so we're going to work our way through this passage together and we're going to pull those out as we go. So let's look at chapter 11 and begin in verse 1 and work through this together. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with her ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we have an initial cast of three characters here in this story. We have Mary, Martha, and we have Lazarus. And if you remember, back in Luke chapter 10, you have the story of, of uh, a meal that's taking place, and Martha is doing all the preparation, and she's serving everybody, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, just soaking up anything she can from his teaching. And Martha gets kind of perturbed, and she comes out, and she calls her out in front of everybody who's there. Um, and Jesus, of course, kind of rebukes her a little bit and says, look, she understand, understands what's important. So we have them in that story. And then in chapter 12 of, of John, we also have a similar story in which Martha, again, is doing kind of the preparatory work. She's serving people. And you have Mary who kind of anoints Jesus with her hair. She takes the really expensive perfume and she, you know, breaks the alabaster uh, 
jar, and there's Judas who kind of rebukes her in that. Like, why are you using the expensive perfume? You could be selling this for money, and you could be doing something else with it, but we have a similar scene. And so we, we see that Jesus spends time with this family on multiple occasions, and I'm sure in other occasions that we don't see in Scripture, he was very close with this family. And then one also kind of side note about Lazarus is the word Lazarus is actually a name that's derived from the Hebrew word Eleazar, or the name Eleazar, and that name means God has helped. So when you think about Lazarus, and you think about the story that we're about to talk about, the fact that his name is God has helped, I just thought that was kind of cool. So really nothing to do with the story, but a pretty fitting name for him. So verses three and four. The sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You notice what Jesus says here, and we've been talking about this for the last few months, all through our prayer series and up to this point in our gospel transformation series, is that no matter what we do, no matter what God calls us to, no matter what Jesus shows us, how he interacts, what he says, the end goal is always the glory of God. That is the most important thing. That is at the center of everything we should do. We should be doing it for the glory of God. And so what Jesus says here is, Listen, um, what's going on and what is about to happen, just keep it in your mind that what you're going to see is all for the glory of God. Everything that's about to play out is with that in, in mind as the purpose, as the end goal, that God would get glory and that I, the Son, would, would be glorified through it. And we find here in these two verses our first um, little nugget, and that is, it is always good to bring our troubles to Jesus. It's always good to bring our troubles to Jesus. Mary and Martha brought the matter of their dying brother to Jesus. And in our lives, most of us will develop really close, intimate relationships, whether it's in our family or whether it's really close friends. And um, oftentimes, life circumstances will kind of intrude into those relationships, intrude into our happiness, and sometimes those relationships can be pulled right out from under us, whether it's through accidents or whether it's through illness or whether it's through death. And so we go through certain things in the relationships that we have, and when this happens, we oftentimes can ask some really tough questions about God and to God. You know, God, are you really even, are you really even here? Are you really present I don't really feel you right now. Um, do you really love me like you say you do? Um, do you really care about what's going on in my life? Um, we have our faith tested in those moments, and um, it's a really hard path to walk. But what Jesus says is, look, um, he doesn't say this, but what we see is they bring their concerns to him, and in the same way, Jesus says, bring your concerns, bring your struggles, bring your pain, bring your grief, bring it to me, because if you try to walk through it by yourself, it's not going to go well. Bring it to me and let me love you. Let me walk with you. Let me show you my glory in it, and let me use it in your life in a very specific way to teach you something or to allow you to... to to grow and maybe help other people or to, um, you know, to, to see some purpose that we don't even think of yet in this. But he's saying, bring these things. He says in Matthew, come to me if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you just can't seem to take it anymore, bring it to me and lay it at my feet and let me handle it. So even though it doesn't say all of that in this verse, the fact that they brought their concern to Jesus and we'll see his response to that 
shows us that we're, we're, we're supposed to bring our concerns to him. We're, we're meant to do that. We're not supposed to try to walk on our own. And then in verses 5 and 6, um, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why would Jesus wait two days? If it says that Lazarus was ill, why would Jesus wait to go and be there and to help? Why did he wait? So a day's journey for the messenger to come, two days of waiting. So it's going to be a few days before Jesus shows up on the scene. Well, why would he do that? Nugget number two is that God always delays for a purpose. It doesn't mean that God always delays. Sometimes it's an immediate answer. But when God delays, it's always for a purpose. Maybe we don't see it, but it's always for a purpose. So number two is God always delays for a purpose. So it would have taken the messenger a full day's travel to get to where Jesus was, okay? A full day travel. And by the time he got there, Lazarus was most likely already dead. And Jesus knew that, right? Jesus knew everything. He is is omniscient is what we say. So he's all knowing. And so God knew that Lazarus had already died. And so in his mind, there's a reason why he's going to wait. And we'll see that in a few verses, but there's always that purpose. But you have to imagine what Mary and Martha might have been thinking. I know that you're just right around the corner. And so why haven't you shown up yet? We're asking you to come help. We're, We're in pain. We're grieving. Why aren't you seemingly here with us? Why haven't you come to help us yet? And that delay is oftentimes what we experience in our lives. There's a a silence that we sometimes experience when we're calling on God for certain things. He doesn't do what we're asking immediately. Maybe he doesn't even seem like he's answering at all. And, And it's really tough to walk through those times when God seemingly is silent. And um does he does he care? Did he hear me? Did you hear what I said? God, you hear what I'm asking? of you. But when we experience that delay, the delayed answer from God, it's always for a purpose, whether it's what path we should take, whether it's uh, removing something from our shoulders that's a difficulty that is really hard to bear. We always have to remember that if there is a delay, it's for a purpose. And I want you to remember the two days that he waited, because in, in just a few verses we'll talk about that, and you'll see the purpose. So keep those, those two days in mind. Okay, uh, verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Like, come on, Jesus, we literally just left. And do you not remember looking up in the rearview mirror and seeing these angry dudes with rocks chasing us down the street, wanting to kill us? Do you not remember that scene? The fact that you were standing at, at the cliff's edge, getting ready to get pushed off and stoned? Like, do you not remember that? And you want to go back into that. That's what's going on in their minds. And then verses 9 and 10. You see uh, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here, it's kind of hard to interpret if you just look at it from face value, but he basically says this. There's 12 hours in a day, and the hours in a day represent, symbolize Jesus' time on earth. So while I'm alive and living on earth, it is day, it is light. This is the 12 hours he speaks of. Jesus was perfectly safe during those 12 hours, during that, the days, because God had his days numbered. 
And he knew the time of Christ's execution, uh, crucifixion. And so Jesus knew also, my days on this earth are protected by God, so I'm going to continue to move forward with what I'm supposed to do. But then he says that there's the, the night, which symbolizes the end of his ministry on earth. So in a few chapters, in a few weeks, when we start uh, to celebrate Easter and Christ's death, but then resurrection, uh, that's the night. That is his, his death. And so he's basically saying, while I'm on this earth, while I have minutes and moments and days to live, uh, I'm going to live every minute that I have for for God's purpose, for God's will, for the glory of God. And I know that right now I'm meant to go back and I'm meant to be with this family and walk with them through this grieving time, but also show my glory and God's glory in what I'm about to do. So uh, no one can stop me. Nothing can get in my way. As long as God has my back, um, you know, it's the basically then let's go, right? If you know that God's got your back no matter what lies ahead, then we should be going, look, my days are exactly precisely numbered by God, and so I'm going to pursue him and run hard after him and do what I'm supposed to do, even if that means maybe one day it's going to be dangerous, put me in danger. Maybe it means I get mocked for my faith. Maybe it means I get made fun of. Maybe it means that people, you know, beat me down or whatever because I'm, I'm claiming to believe in Christ. Whatever it is, while there is day, there is safety, is what he is saying. And then verses 11 through 16. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that this meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Look, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. All right, literally, Jesus, he's asleep, and he's going to wake up. So why do you want to go put yourself in harm's way? Again, why do you want to go back? You just told us he was just sleeping. He's sick, yes, but he's asleep. He's resting. You don't need to go. It's going to be okay. So Jesus finally says, listen, you're not getting it, okay? Lazarus is dead, okay? He's, he's dead. And so we need to go. And you know what? I'm glad that we weren't there when he died. The reason I'm glad that we weren't there is because now, when, you're about, when you see what's about to happen, what's coming, then it's going to strengthen your faith. And you're going to see things about me that you've never seen before. Not only is it going to strengthen your faith, disciples, it's going to strengthen the faith of Mary and Martha. It's going to strengthen the faith of the believers that were there in mourning with them. It's even going to strengthen and maybe give faith to those that don't know me yet. So this is why I'm glad we weren't there. If we were there, um, then it would have been different. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I'm glad we weren't. Purpose in delay. And then you see Doubting Thomas, right? You see Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas. And that's an unfortunate name for him because we remember him as that. But we see a very positive side to Thomas here, a little bit of a, um, well, not redemptive quality because this is earlier. Um, but you see something good. His words reflect his love for Jesus. His words reflect his devotion to Jesus. His words reflect a courage about his faith to Jesus because he's willing to go where Jesus goes and die with him. He says, look, let's go, okay? Maybe it's going to be dangerous. We just came from it. We were also threatened. But if Jesus is going, I'm going with him. Even if that means it, it could cost us our lives. If Jesus is there, I'm there. That's basically what he's saying. And not only does he say that, but he says, 
I'm going, and I think all of you should come with me too. Let's all go. We're a family. We're in this together. Jesus is going. Let's go. If this is where he wants us, then this is, this is where we're going to go. Um, and this is a great quality about Thomas, right? We don't remember this little sentence here when we think of Thomas, but this is great. He's going, it doesn't matter to me. Jesus says to go, we're going, and hey, whatever happens, that's what's meant to happen. We need to turn our backs on what we think is safe, turn our backs on what's comfortable, where we know that we're not going to be harmed, and let's just go get after it because this is what Jesus is calling us to. So let's go. Number three, nugget number three, is that it's far better to be with Jesus no matter what lies ahead. Far better to be with Jesus. Wherever that means it might take us, it's so much better to be with Jesus when we walk through certain things, when there's difficulty in our lives, when we face something that we can't face alone, when we have Jesus with us, it is so much, not easy, but easier when we have Christ in it with us. Look at verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is very important. You remember the two days that Jesus waited. So you have the one day that it took the messenger to get to Jesus. You have two days that Jesus delayed. And then you have another day's travel to get to where Lazarus was. And so you have four days. Why is the four-day period so important? This is what a, um, a commentator said. Historically, the Jews believed that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to re-enter it. But on the fourth day, after noticing that the body was beginning to decompose, the soul departed. Only then would a death be considered completely irreversible. Lazarus had been dead four days, and his body had already started to decompose. The Jews, therefore, purpose, man, would have recognized that only a divine miracle could restore him to life. So why did Jesus wait the two days? Because he knew that in the belief system back then, four days, the person was considered finally separated from soul and body and dead. And so Jesus waits for that four-day period so that his miracle would be proof that only a divine person or being could restore him to life. And so delaying for a purpose, right? I didn't see it then, but now you see that Jesus waited and he waited so that his glory would be known on a greater level, everything for a purpose. So 18 through 27, let's read a little bit more of the story. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus said to her, no, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Such an important part of the story here because this is, um, this is the gospel. This is talking about new life in Christ. This is talking about him bringing people out of, out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And he's talking about it in two different ways. The first half of his statement is speaking of a physical life. 
He says, if you believe in me, even though you will die physically on this earth, you will live physically with God in eternity. And that comes in the final days as we are resurrected into his presence. Uh, And then the second half speaks of a spiritual nature, which is whoever is spiritually alive, because they believe in me, you will never die spiritually. So at the moment you accept Christ and you believe that he is sufficient to save you from sin and from death and from separation from God, in that moment, you are now given new life, a resurrection spiritually. Well, how can Jesus make these kinds of claims? How can he possibly say, listen, if you believe, then physically and spiritually, there will be no end to you. Forever and ever in eternity, you will have life and it will never end. How can Jesus make those kind of claims? Well, physically speaking, Jesus went to a cross and he died a very literal physical death. And then three days later, a very literal physical resurrection. And in that tomb, in the moment that Jesus took that breath again, that, that moment, the gasp of waking up again, he defeated death physically. And therefore, when he defeated death physically, he grants us that same gift of eternal, physical relationship with Jesus in the new kingdom, on the new earth, one day, but physically he defeats death and therefore we now can have that same kind of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22 tell us, but in fact, uh, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Spiritually speaking, Romans 3.23 says that we, we've all sinned. Everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have all sinned, we are all separated from God. We deserve uh, death. We deserve to remain in that separation. The death that we deserve, however, Christ took upon himself on the cross. And so when he died on the cross, spiritually speaking, he took our sins, and, and when we experience a physical, uh, spiritual death, we also are granted a spiritual new life. So when he took our sins on the cross and died in our place, he now offers us a way. In that moment, we don't receive it. When we believe on him, we receive it. But he offers us a way to have eternal life spiritually. And that new life begins at the moment we believe. That's not a future speak. That is right now when you believe who Jesus is, and you you claim to be a Christian, you believe on him as your savior, you have been granted new life spiritually. The old has passed away, the new has has come in a way for us uh, in our life. We are a new creation, right? Die to our old self, live in newness of life. Romans 6, 4 says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's why Jesus can make such a claim. That's why he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Because I died and I was, well, I will die and will raise back to life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies physically, yet shall he live physically in eternity. And everyone who lives and believes in me spiritually shall never die spiritually because I have taken care of that for you. And then he poses the question, do you believe this? And that question is what I'm gonna pose to you at the end of this message. So remember his question to Martha here. Do you believe this? So, nugget number four. Uh, 
When we believe in Jesus, we are granted physical and spiritual resurrection, which is new life. All right, let's continue on. Uh, Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You notice when Mary comes, she falls at Jesus' feet. And that's where we always find Mary, at the feet of Jesus, learning the first instance, worshiping in this instance, um, serving him by washing his feet in the next. But she's always at his feet, falling at his feet. You also notice that in God's sovereignty, the whole group of mourners has come. So Jesus knows this, and he wants them all to see what's about to happen. And the scene was understandably one of a really intense nature, because when it says that they came weeping, that word weeping means to wail or to lament loudly. It's a loud, audible wailing of grief. And um, back then, it was expected that even the poorest of families were to hire uh, two flute players and one professional mourning woman. And so the status of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were a prominent family, so they would have even more. So the scene was just kind of a, kind of a chaotic scene of grieving and wailing and crying and, and this audible mourning. And, and so when we see um, that Jesus is troubled in his spirit, um, you can kind of understand the intensity behind that. We also have to understand what these words meant. It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So in the original language, we really need to understand that to understand what's going on with Jesus. So the term deeply moved is from a word that literally means to snort like a horse. Okay. So think about this, and I'm not going to make the noise um, because I can't. My three-year-old could, you know. I did it. Um, so, uh, but think about a horse, okay? And they've got a really heavy load uh, on its back, and it's just bearing this weight and this burden, and kind of the noise that a horse makes as it's working really, really hard, and is just kind of groaning and, and making these audible noises of like, oh, it's so hard, and it's just so intense, and it's so heavy, and that idea is kind of what is is implied here. And then you have also the same word only three other times in the New Testament, uh, which means Uh, sternly warned or scolding. So the implication of Jesus's response in his spirit is that Jesus is really wrestling with feelings of discontent. He's wrestling with an overwhelming burden for what he's experiencing, what he's seeing. Um, he's, he's, He's grieving the loss of a friend. And so you have all of these different things that are going on in his heart, in his spirit, in his mind. And there's actually a lot of debate out there over what was really troubling him. Because some people say um, that he was really troubled over the reality of death, which is a, 
a result of sin. It's a curse of sin. So he's, he's really just grieved by, uh, upset by the fact that this is a result of, of sin entering the world. So the curse of sin. Some people think that he's upset because he's watching all these people mourn and it seemingly, uh, it seemingly shows that they don't have hope. Right? It's, they're just mourning the loss of this person, so he's like, they're so hopeless, they don't understand the new life, and if, if they understood, would they really be mourning like this, and would it be so intense and so chaotic, or would they be celebrating and rejoicing the fact that, you know, he's wrestling with this hopelessness. Some people think that. Um, others say that he's really got a deep groaning uh, with the emotion of the sisters that they're feeling. He's, he's relating to that grief and, and that pain and emotion. One commentator says that all these must be taken together. Grief, sin, unbelief, death, and sorrow. The expression used implies that he now voluntarily and deliberately accepts and makes his own the emotion and the experience from which it is his purpose to deliver men. He gathers up into his own personality all the misery resulting from sin, represented in a dead man and brokenhearted people around him. And then you have one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, most likely because it was the easiest one to memorize as a kid. But it says, Jesus wept. We also need to understand what this word wept means. Because it's far different than what it means in verse 33 when you have the loud, super audible wailing and loud groanings. And that idea of weeping is a different word than is used of Christ. The word that's used of Christ means silently bursting into tears. So you imagine the weight and just picture yourself almost like trying to hold it together. There's so much bearing down on you and you're just trying every moment just to kind of hold it together and eventually it just gets to be too much and it doesn't become this loud burst of, oh, wailing, but it's just kind of a, I just I can't do it anymore. And you just begin to weep silently because it's just so overwhelming. This is the kind of weeping that he was experiencing. So he's so overwhelmed. He's so burdened by whatever it is, everything maybe that's going on, that he just begins to, to weep silently, bursting into tears. You think about everything we just talked about, and you can kind of understand maybe why he was weeping. Isaiah 53, 3 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he understood that. He went through that. Why did he go through that? Well, I think he went through it so he could relate to us when we go through it. Shows us his humanity. But it's such a sight in that moment that even those that maybe don't believe in him look and go, man, look how much he loves this family. Look how much he loved this man who has died. Look at his love that's pouring out in his tears. But then you also have others in verse 37 that say, yeah, but I mean, come on, he healed the blind guy. Couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? So there's still the skeptic. There's still the, those that doubt. But then you have the climax of everything here in verse 38. This is the big reveal. Jesus, deeply moved again, same use, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, understandably so, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, this is a prayer for everyone around him, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Purpose. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I love the way that Jesus calls him out because in the original Greek language, literally what he says is, Lazarus, here, outside. That's what he says. How powerful, how bold, how just short and like, Lazarus, out. It's like basically what he does. And everyone's like, what do you, you know, and they roll the stone away and out walks the man who was dead. It's unbelievable. He speaks, and this is so powerful for us, and a dead man comes back to life. And the power that is held in that, in what people say is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed, is the power that speaks new life into us, which is nugget number five. Jesus speaks new life into being. Um, spiritually speaking, when Jesus speaks to someone who is lost, someone who doesn't yet know him on a personal level as savior, as redeemer, um, Christ calls those people by name. He called me by name and he calls you by name, which is so personal and so amazing. And he brought me out of the deadness of my sin and spoke life into me. And I'm so thankful, and I know that he's done that for a lot of you. But I hope if he hasn't yet, and you're in here and you don't know him on a personal level, I'm telling you that he is calling you by name. By name, personally. Not in a general sense. Personally. And when he calls you by name, the spiritually dead will be given new life, will come out of the grave, out of the tomb, and meet him in newness of life. These emotions are personal, but I just want that so badly for everyone. Um, all right, great story, uh, great passage. I want to I take a look back at the five nuggets that we kind of dug up here, all right? Um, we'll go through these. So number one, it's always good to bring our troubles to Jesus. Number two, God always delays for a purpose. Three, it's far better to be with Jesus no matter what lies ahead. Four, when we believe in Jesus, we're granted physical and spiritual resurrection, which is new life. And then nugget number five, he speaks that new life into being. He speaks it into being. That is the power that he holds in his, in his words. So we're in a series called Gospel Transformation. And uh, what do these tell us about gospel transformation? Well, I would say that if we don't know Jesus, then these things can't be true of us. Think about it. If, um, number one, if, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we can't bring our troubles to him. 
because we don't believe that he can really take care of them. Number two, if we don't believe in God, then it's never going to seem like he's present. It's always going to seem like he's delaying because we don't even believe that he's there. If we don't believe that following Jesus is worth it, then the tough times will be far more difficult. If we don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we will remain spiritually separated from God. And if we don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we won't ever understand the freedom that comes from a new life in him. If you don't know Jesus, if you know about him but you don't know him personally, he so desperately wants to call you out of spiritual death and into newness of life. He wants to give you the life that he promises, the resurrection that he promises. John 3.16 tells us that he loves every one, the whole entire world. And so that includes me, that includes you, and he wants desperately to call us out of darkness, into his light, out of the grave, into life. And he wants these truths to be realized in your life. So I, I guess to leave you with the question that he poses to Martha, do you believe this? Um, this, can be, this can be for those that follow Christ as well. This can be for those that call themselves Christians because um, even the first few that talk about our response in grief and sorrow and pain and struggles, um, do you believe these things? In other words, do you believe that it's good to bring our troubles to Jesus? Do you believe that he can handle them? Do you believe that he wants to? Do you believe that you can't and that you need to give them up? Do you believe that, um, that when God delays, it's for a purpose? Or do you shake your fist at God and get angry and doubt and, and kind of blame him? Do you believe that it's better to be with Jesus no matter where it takes you? Do you believe those things about him? Do you believe truly that when you believe in him, the physical uh, life that we're promised, the spiritual life that we can have and are promised, do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that he has the power to speak new life? Do you believe these things? I pray that you do. Um, and if you don't, I, I, at least before you walk out of these doors, as we sing the next couple of songs, which are beautiful songs, just consider for your own life, you don't know Christ on that level, based on what we said about the cross and the crucifixion and the death and why he did that and dying in our place and wanting to give you new life, do you want that? Do you want, I want you to have it. Do you want that newness of life? Because it's beautiful. There's nothing like it. Do you want it? And if you do, um, during the next few songs, it's a simple prayer. Jesus, I, I believe that you died for me. I believe that I can't do anything to gain access to relationship to you, but you did it for me, and I believe that. Jesus says you believe on these things and you will be saved. You don't need to come up here and pray with someone. Why delay? Just do it in your seat. You don't need to give us any money. You believe, it says. You confess with your mouth. If you don't know Jesus, I'm pleading with you. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He wants to call you out of death into life. Take care of that in your seat. If you want to talk to somebody, we're so happy to talk to you. Let me pray, and um, we're going to sing a few more songs together. God, thanks for uh, this story, and thank you that we can, even in reading a story that we've heard many times, still hopefully learn something new. And I pray that these truths that we've pulled out wouldn't just be um, for those that may be going through something currently, but I pray that we would, we would hide these, these truths away in our hearts and minds and remember this story so that when we do go through things, 
we'll be reminded of, of your view of our struggles. And that is one of, you want the glory, you want us to bring those things to you. And if there is a delay, it is always for a purpose that maybe we can't see, but remind us of those truths. And if, if there's anyone in here, God, that doesn't know you, I pray that your spirit would just break through in this moment and they would understand what it means to have newness of life through what you did on the cross. And I pray that so intensely right now, God, that you would do that um, and that we would learn that somebody has come to a new place uh, and that is believing in you. So I pray that you would stir in hearts. Don't let anyone leave here if they don't know you without at least considering what that might mean for them. We love you so much and are so thankful for this time that we get to come together as a body and learn about you and worship together. So I pray now that we would just worship you in response to your truth and lift up your name because you are powerful enough to pull us out of death and darkness into life and light. So let us lift up your name together with nothing holding us back. We love you so much in your son's name. Amen.